Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you have benefited from the show and would like to support Theology in the Raw, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to premium uh, content that is exclusive for my Patreon supporters. Also, if you want to attend the Exiles in Babylon 2023 conference here in Boise, Idaho. You can go to theologyandraw.com. Um, by the time this episode is released, I think the lineup of speakers, which will be a um, a growing lineup of speakers and topics, I think all of that will be posted on the website. If if it's not there yet, it will be very soon. Again, theologyandraw.com. Space is limited. We sold out last year. So I think we'll probably sell out again this year. So if you do want to come out and attend live, uh, I would sign up sooner than later. We are going to live stream it as well. So the virtual version of the conference will be available uh, for as many people as want to watch it. So yeah, my guest today is somebody who I just recently uh, uh, recently came across, uh, Danielle Trewek. Uh, I, I, I hope I pronounced that correctly. She she helped me to pronounce her last name several times and I kept missing it. So I'm sure I missed it again then. But Danielle, goes by Danny, is a Christian uh, scholar who recently completed her PhD at uh, St. Mark's Theological Center in Canberra, Australia. Her thesis was entitled The End of Singleness Towards a Theological Retrieval of Singleness for the Contemporary Church. And she's also writing a book under a similar topic for IVP, which will be out next year. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with Danny. She is a fantastic writer, uh, a spicy writer, a very engaging writer. I would highly encourage you to check out her blog at danielletroek.com. Um, lots of resources there. And yeah, never a dull moment in Danny's writing. So we had a great conversation primarily about singleness, 1 Corinthians 7, some contemporary questions about the church. And then we did talk about the complementarian, egalitarian debates because uh, Danny is an ordained minister who is also a complementarian, <laughs> which makes it interesting. And she had some great thoughts about that. So please welcome to the show for the first time, Danny Trowick. Thank you so much for uh, tuning into Theology Raw all the way down from Australia. It's is it close to midnight where you're at? I know it's like seven thirty my time here, AM. Yeah, yeah, it's about twenty twenty to midnight. Okay, so, yeah. well, at least for a few minutes, we're gonna be on the same day. That is true. That is true. <laughs> it's always hard scheduling stuff with people in Australia. With the, it's not the time thing we can work around, but it's the day. It's like, all right, we're on for Wednesday. I'm like. Well, maybe. Like, what do you mean by Wednesday, you know? Um, and when you throw daylight savings into it, oh. it completely blows everything up. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, I came across your work in a um, very recently, uh, I didn't even tell you this off offline, but uh, very recently um, in a Twitter thread, I was asking for names of, of female scholars who would be on the complementarian side of the women in ministry uh, debate. And uh, your name, among several others, uh, came up. So... As the names are popping up, you know, some I recognize, some I'm like, I haven't heard of that person yet. So I, I would click on stuff and read. And I clicked on your 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 blog and I'm not I don't read a lot of blog. I probably read like maybe five blogs a year. Like I don't I don't and not I just have tons of books and other yeah. stuff out to read. I got so sucked in. You're an amazing writer. Oh, thank you. You're a fantastic, <laughs> like spicy writer with a ton of like scholarly ump. I was like, wow, I, I don't see this a lot. I mean, this is really good stuff. So I probably read like six or seven of your blogs and just got sucked. I mean, the content too, you're talking about singleness in First Corinthians 7, which I want to get into. Some of the content was great too, but yeah. I oh, that's, that's 
not a small achievement because I can't write short either. And so most of my lo- my blog posts are quite long. So if you read six or seven of them, you were there for a while. They were. Yeah, they were longer. I don't I don't know. I, I feel like for myself, I, t- I tend to break the rules on what people say your podcast should be your blog blog. Make sure it's 800 words. I'm like. My my most widely read blogs are over 2,000 words. And I agree, I'd, shorter reads are typically better. But I just wonder if like, I don't know, maybe it's because bloggers aren't typically great writers. And so after 800 words, people get kind of bored anyway. I don't know. But Let's talk about single. Or how about you start with your story? Um, you are single, correct? Yes, <laughs> and, I am. Um, I'm single, have never been married. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you, you did your PhD in like a theology of singleness. Is that correct? I did. I'm um I'm I'm a doctor of singleness. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, but um yeah, that's what my PhD was in. Can you give us a snapshot summary of, of your doctoral thesis and then would love to dive into probably some particular areas of it? Uh yeah, sure. I wanted to write a book on singleness. Um and then I thought, well, people had encouraged me to write a book on singleness. Um and I thought, okay, well I could write a book on singleness and then it will be another book on singleness that sits on the shelves and has nothing new or interesting to say that hasn't already been said. And so I really thought, is there something new or interesting to say? Um, And so uh, somehow that turned into a four-year full-time PhD. And thankfully I discovered, well, it wasn't that there was anything new to say, but really what I discovered was that our Christian ancestors have said lots of things about singleness really exciting, wonderful, encouraging things about the dignity and the value and the importance of singleness, not just for the single Christian, but for the body of Christ as a whole, Mm. stuff that we've just completely forgotten, Mm. that I certainly was completely unaware of, right through the the ancient church, through the medieval church. Um, And so really my, my PhD was looking back at, looking to see what we could retrieve from the past for a theology of singleness in the present. And it, my, my focus was particularly on how did, how through Christian history have our Christian forefathers understood singleness as being eschatologically significant. By that I mean how does looking to eternity help us to understand the significance of singleness now? That's really where my research was focused on and that's I've, uh, my thesis has been turned into a book which is coming out next year and so that's really going to be the, the full argument of the book. Uh, the the meaning of singleness. It's with IVP. Well done landing an IVP <laughs> contract. That's fantastic. Is it? Are you done with the manuscript now? I would. If he says if it's coming out next year, I would imagine you're done or just about done with the. Literally twenty minutes before we sat down to talk, I was editing one of the chapters. Um, I've got to get the final edits uh, done in the next week or so, but um, hopefully it'll be out okay. sometime in maybe spring next year. I think at this stage. How would your book? differ from like so i've read like barry danelick's book um dabbled in a few other books i know wesley hills you know written on it is, are you bringing in more early church history interpretation of scripture is, is that where you to differ or is there some yeah, fundamental no. differences between what danny would say or barry danelick yeah. and danny you <laughs> yeah well wes hill was actually one of my phd examiners um oh, which was lovely sweet. i didn't know about that I, I know wes but i didn't know he was one of my examiners till after i got the report back 
and he was lovely. He um, gave me a glowing report. Barry, Barry Dalilak's book is great. Um, it's a biblical theology of singleness. I probably would disagree with him, particularly in the last few years. I've come to disagree with some of his interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7 in particular, and we can probably talk a bit about some of that um, a okay. bit later. Okay. Um, but his book, Redeeming Singleness, is excellent mm. in terms of tracing scripture, a singleness through the storyline of scripture. My research is really the question, sort of overarching question for my PhD research was we talk about the meaning of singleness today being found in its in the freedom or the time or the flexibility that singles apparently have for ministry and kingdom work you know we sort of say the meaning of singleness is located in what can be done with it right but we talk about marriage very differently um there there is a sense in which we speak about marriage like that but we also recognise that Scripture talks about marriage having much more of a theological significance that points us all towards eternity. You know, we see the picture of human earthly marriage pointing us towards the eternal marriage in heaven, which gives marriage itself now an inherent, an essential theological dignity, regardless of our experience of it. So even bad marriages, problematic marriages, troubled marriages, as tragic and terrible as they are, Marriage itself still remains good, but we don't say that about singleness. If someone is unhappily single, then singleness, there's nothing good about their singleness. And so really what I was trying to engage with is does Scripture help us to see that there is something inherent to the single state for Christians um, that goes beyond just our experience of it and makes us actually eternally significant now in the way that marriage is I really, I do that through three particular ways. I look at a history, sort of a broad arching history of, of singleness, so to speak, um, through church history. Um, I look at some of the key, a couple of the key biblical passages, um, and then I engage with four different theologians from across the course of history um, to, to sort of okay. see what they okay. have to say, and then I pull all those threads together. I'm guessing, was Augustine one of them and you had three others? or? Did you... <laughs> That's usually no, how it works. Augustine was one of them, as we call Aussies call him Augustine. Yeah. Augustine. Um, <laughs> Augustine was one of them. Um, uh, a random medieval monk was another one, and it was brilliant delving into to the Middle Ages like that. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, oh, yeah. um, was one, and then Stanley Hauerbaus was my last one. So I really sort of went through the sweep yeah. of um, Christian yeah. history, and it was really it was fun actually looking at all of them. So. In my, in my the little reading I've done in early church history, I, you know, it is fascinating that, you know, there was a kind of a live debate on whether singleness or marriage was better. And and quite a few theologians kind of, well, I, I don't know, they kind of echo a little bit of Paul's language. Like, it's not wrong to get married. I'm not saying you're in sin. Okay. But, you know, the single life is, if you really want to be really close to Jesus and therefore, therefore flourishing in life, um, the single life is kind of where it's at. Is that, would that be, I mean, it seems like there's several like early fathers who kind of took that view, like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, that this was actually the chapter I was just editing tonight. Um, and as I was rereading it, I was reminded of just how complicated history is. I mean, you know, even if you sort of said to someone in a couple of hundred years time, could you give, you know, an overview of singleness within this 50 years from 1980 to 2030, it would be very difficult to do that comprehensively. So let alone then saying, 
all right, let's spend, you know, what's 500 years of church history across the entire Roman Empire. Um, yeah. It was very complicated and there was lots of people who said different things. Um, and it wasn't as, they weren't as rah-rah singleness. I mean, they didn't have the word singleness. It was really virginity then. They weren't as, you know, they weren't as fully focused on the superiority of virginity as we might think they might have been at certain times. But yes, that was definitely the dominant trajectory. But what is again fascinating is that it was in large part because they had their eyes set on eternity, because they were waiting for the new creation to come, because they didn't want to be living in this world for this world. Hmm. Um, and they hmm. saw virgins um, as those who really exemplified um, the, the, the new creation which is to come in the sense of, I don't want to get into too much detail, but it, in the sense that none of us will be married in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, um, really the question then is if none of us are going to be married to each other in heaven, what does that mean for those who aren't married on earth? Does that not therefore give actually some special and unique dignity to not being married here and now? Um, and so those were the kind of things that some of the early church fathers were wrestling with. Um, particularly through language of kind of being like the angels. Mm -hmm. And they also had some different ideas about Adam and Eve and whether they were sexually active before the fall. And really mm -hmm. that dominated a lot of the discussion as well in ways that would seem very strange and odd to us um, yeah. today. Yeah, I mean, uh, their their view on just sex in particular was, I don't, from my vantage point, a little odd or a little... <laughs> I mean, for sure they were, you know, sex is for procreation, but even like there was, I read some stuff, I, I can't remember the names, but like even within marriage, just procreation. And if you're kind of enjoying it, you're probably sinning a little bit, but you know, it's kind of a necessary yeah. evil. <laughs> I'm like, ah, it's yeah. a little too far, but yeah, they're yeah, beyond single. Yeah. Very foreign landscape to us today. We're looking back at them, but mm -hmm. this is the point we have, you know, we live in an age where we think that we know everything. You yeah. know, we live in a time when we don't look back to history because it's what C.S. Lewis talks about as chronological snobbery. You know, we think we're the ones who really understand we've got the goods. Mm -hmm. um, and so it can be tempting for us to look back to, you know, these ancient um, theologians and pastors and say, oh, my gosh, these people were crazy. But actually, we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah. We may not always agree yeah. with them. They wouldn't agree with us. But they are our, you know, we have inherited so much from them and we've also forgotten so much that we could have inherited from them. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah. there's gems there to uncover if we're willing to go back and actually be humble. Yeah. Well, I think they would, we, we look at them and say, wow, you took all the romance out of marriage. I think they would probably say you might put a little bit too much romance in, in the marriage, <laughs> you know, like you have no like rich theology of marriage. And so when romance kind of wears off, and the marriage is yeah. kind of like, well, if that's what marriage is all about, that's in most cases, nine out of, nine out of ten, it's gonna they're just the feelings of romance are gonna wear off. And it's like, oh, well, if that's what marriage is all about, then my marriage must be done, you know? So yeah, I don't know if we've yeah. nailed, <laughs> I don't know if we have like the corner market on how to really have a successful quote, successful, successful marriage. I, I wanna talk about this idea of the gift of singleness. Cause this in my work, it comes yeah. up a lot. And you know, I hear people say, well, I, you know, I don't, if you have the gift, then yeah, be sing, you know, then singleness is for you. It almost sounds like it almost, it comes off almost like, well, if you're kind of like being independent and you're not lonely, you're kind of an introvert 
you know, maybe you're, you have a really low libido, like then you probably have the gift and you know, then, yeah, I guess that's good for you. But for the rest of us, we really need, you know, a a married marriage part. Like we can't exist without marriage. I'm like, I just don't know if that's what Paul's saying in first Corinthians seven. It's just, Mm -hmm. it, it just struck me as a little bit like I don't think Paul would line up with that. Can you unpack that? What's your understanding of the gift of singleness and yeah, when what Paul's saying? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I I spent many many years confused about this, as I think most of us do. So you know, we should clarify that we're talking about um, one Corinthians seven, yeah. um, verse yeah. seven. You, let's start in verse. I can you go ahead and read it. Uh, verse six, because that's where he uses the language of gift. We yep. assume that that kind of can probably, you know, it, does that carry over to the next verse, whatever. But yeah, verse seven and eight, verse seven and eight. Go for it. Uh, all right, I'm reading from the ESV just because it's what I've got in front of me. Um, he says, verse seven, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Mm-hmm. And what is on view there when he talks about as I myself am, it's pretty clear that what he's got on view there is his singleness. Um, he, he's not married. We don't know. He could have been a widow. There's, you know, good reason to think that perhaps he would have been married, but it's clear from this passage that he, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's not. And so really the gift of singleness, I mean, the gift of singleness isn't even a phrase in scripture. Uh, you know, you can see there he says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so the gift of singleness is really the phrase that's been coined you know, it's a contemporary phrase to talk, to try and interpret this verse in a particular way. Um, And the way it's generally interpreted is that Paul is saying here that there are some people, um, probably very few, they're rare, it goes, who have been given a special spiritual gift, a special spiritual empowerment um, from God. So it's kind of moving forward to later chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul goes in to start talking about spiritual gifts, specifically spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. And so people sort of import it back in here to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, he's got on view here a special, what I call booster shot of the Holy Spirit that's given to, you know, a select few that means that they can quite happily do life as an unmarried person not having sex, mm-hmm. not being, not struggling with sexual temptation. This was the view that really I grew up with. I didn't hear any other view until probably my early 20s. And I remember reading a book um, that at the time was called The Single Issue. I think it was republished as Singles at the Crossroad by Al Sue. It's published yeah. in the late 90s, yeah. I think. And he was the first one I ever read who said, the gift of singleness is not a special empowerment. It's just the, the state of being single. Paul is just saying here, if you are single, you have the gift of singleness. If you are married, you have the gift of marriage. And that that was kind of wow to me because I thought that makes so much more sense of my experience as a single person who would love to be married, who has a normal sexual libido, who struggles with sexual desire and temptation, but for whom God back then in my 20s and now in my, my, you know, my 40s, has not answered with the gift of a spouse. So what do I do with that? How do I reconcile a loving God who has said you need a special spiritual gift to stay single as and holy and godly as a single unmarried person or you need to get married, but I'm not going to give you either marriage or the gift. What what do I and the majority of single Christians do with that? It, it really, it's very, it's deeply inadequate pastorally and theologically 
And then as I began to think about it more and more, I liked Al Su's solution. I wondered if it was too convenient. I just, I, I, I wasn't sure what the argument was behind it. And so I held it whilst also just being a little bit like, oh, am I just believing this because it suits me to believe it? But it really wasn't until I started doing some deep thinking about singleness theologically through my research that I, I just became more and more convinced that that traditional interpretation of the gift of singleness as this special booster shot is just so contrary to so many other parts of Scripture and our understanding of Scripture. You know, there is, there is no other area of sin in the Christian life where we would ever suggest that you need some special booster shot of the Holy Spirit to enable you to resist that sin. You know, we, we don't say with greed or with lying or with impatience that you the whole the indwelling spirit of God is not enough mm-hmm. to sanctify you in that. But when it comes to sex, for some reason that's what we say. And it was really interesting going back and realizing that so much of this is actually based on the Reformation and the Reformation's view of sexuality. And actually this gift of singleness idea is completely contrary to anything that the ancient Christians thought of. It's, it's actually completely opposite to the way that they thought about the power, the, the, the self-control and power available to the Christian by the Holy Spirit through the grace of God to say no to sin. That idea that um, if you are single, you have the gift. If you are married, that is the gift that God has given to you. That I, I actually went back to a, a book I wrote in, that came out in 2015. I said something kind of like that. And I remember I, I briefly was interacting with 1 Corinthians 7, read a few things. I might have read. I don't think I read Sue. I was interacting with people too. So I don't know where I got it. But I remember it just kind of clicked. I'm like, well, that that does make a lot more sense of what, like when I read Paul with that in view of like, oh, that his language makes more sense to me now. So I, I said something like that back then, but I haven't really done what, what I haven't wrestled with as much is what Paul says in verse well, eight, and nine. So, you know, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. So, I mean, isn't, isn't it that statement where we get this idea and it even is built into some people talk about various purposes of marriage. And one of them they say is a remedy for sin, and they quote this, like it, it's, you know, which even that I'm like, oh, that just feels p- potentially misogynistic. Um, but also like you're going to rush into a marriage because you just really want to have sex and you feel like you can't control yourself. Like, ooh, I don't know. I just have red flags going up. Uh, but what's Paul? Yeah. Say? Kind of, I mean, I, I can see where people would get that from based on what Paul yeah. says. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that's right. It is right. I mean, verses verses eight and nine are really instrumental in 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 unpacking that further. Thing is that when we read this in our sort of contemporary modern day context, where we are kind of living in this sex soaked, sex obsessed world, where you know sexual gratification is literally at our fingertips on our computer at any moment of the day that we want to achieve it, what it means for us to not be able to exercise self control in our heads is if I have any sexual desire at all and it makes me uncomfortable trying to resist this, 
then I'm not cut out for singleness. You know, that's the way that our brains sort yeah, of go. That's yeah. the way that a lot of the commentary on these verses are, that um, if you can't exercise self-control, i.e., if you have a normal sexual libido, experience sexual desire, sexual temptation, then you're not cut out to remain single. And I think we have to weigh a few things up there. The first is that in other parts of Scripture, Paul talks about the the indwelling spirit of God, the person of God himself working within us to cultivate spiritual fruit, one of which is self-control. You think about the fruits of the spirit, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be very careful before we say, oh, well, I possibly I can't possibly be self-controlled because we've actually been given, God himself has come to live within us to cultivate the fruit of self-control in our lives. So what are we actually therefore saying about the power of God to work in us if we say I can't possibly be self-controlled myself? But in terms of this particular verse, um, without getting into too much of the sort of the verse detail, I think a few things to pick up on is he doesn't doesn't say if they think they can't exercise self-control. He says if they cannot exercise self-control. And, in fact, Sorry to be the bore who says in the original Greek, but in the original Greek, it's actually a present tense. It's if they are not exercising self-control. So there's a sense in which he's writing to people who are actively sexually committing sexual immorality. And in the context, it seems to be betrothed people um, and widows who are possibly in a relationship with someone who they could be married to. They're not married to them, but they they are not exercising self-control. And is that, you say so, it's, it's, it's likely that they are in some kind of relationship headed towards marriage or whatever. That's a modern way of putting it. He based that on verse eight, when he says he's addressing the unmarried and the widows. And mm-hmm. this is something I've recently kind of come across that in, in the Greco-Roman culture, it was, it was I, th- I think uh, Caesar Augustus, well, maybe not him, but I, th- I think there was some laws almost, some legal ramifications that widows should be remarried within three years or something or whatever it was. Don't quote me on that. But it was like very, very, very likely that widows would get remarried fairly quickly. So the fact that he's addressing widows and some, uh, commentators are split on whether the when he says unmarried and widows, that he, is he talking about male and female, you know, widower or widowed and widow? Widow. What's the male widow? <laughs> the widow and the widower. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't need, we can come back to that, but it's just, if you look at the historical context, it's very likely that these people he's addressing would be headed toward a remarriage really fairly soon if, if, if they're not like right in that moment. So yeah. they're having sex with yeah. somebody that they are very, very likely going to be married to. Is that? Yeah, possibly. And I mean, we've also got betrothed on view in this this chapter as well. What I think we have to remember, and I've written something about this in um, a Christianity Today article, um, that if people go to my Twitter profile, it's pinned to the top. So you can go and have a look there. But what we have to remember is the cultural context back then in the first century for unmarried people was incredibly different to our context today. If I was born in the first century, my parents would have arranged a marriage for me. I would have had almost no agency in who I married, when I married them, why I married them. This, you know, this was very much part of getting married was part of what you did as a societal and familial responsibility. Um, And so we read back into these passages from our perspective where single people, even someone like myself who would love to be married, has not been married, I have still been able to exercise a huge amount of agency 
in my decisions in this regard that would have been completely foreign to first century Christians. So we just have to be very careful as we think about this not to superimpose our context directly onto the ancient context. And so Paul is writing to, particularly when he's writing to betrothed Christians, he's writing to people who are in some sort of formal arrangement to marry. They're not yet married, Mm. but their families Mm. have engaged some sort of almost legal possibly contract that these people would marry. So it's it's not just if you could find someone to marry, it's a you are could marry this person at this point mm. tomorrow if you wanted to. Certainly widows, um, and less so widowers, but widows, there would have been, you know, it would have been very isolating and an insecure existence living as a, a first century female yeah. widow. It's not like today um, where there is a degree of economic and social security. And so, again, there's all sorts of different relational dynamics at play that we need to take into account when we're reading this verse. Um, And so when Paul says if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, he's not just saying if you feel sexual desire, then you're not meant to be single. He's writing to specific people who are engaged in specific activity um, with specific others saying if you're having sex with each other, you should be married Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because it is better to marry than to burn. Now, again, we've got most of our translations say burn with passion. Scripture just says to burn. So Mm -hmm. is it burn with passion? Is it burn in terms of judgment? Is there much of a difference? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But, again, this is just about doing the hard work with the Bible rather than just sort of running um, our context our, it through our lens and sort of deciding, okay, that's what it must mean. Do you think that uh, in verse 8 he's addressing widower and widow or do you think uh, that it's talking about unmarried and unmarried state as a whole? Because um, he does, I mean, yeah. I, I, I used to think just unmarried state as a whole, but then the fact that it is paired with widow and that he does, a, he has a whole section on the, the you know, virgins later. Yeah, and so he seems to he seems to be very organized in the kind of category of person he's talking to. So I was a little bit persuaded that I think the Greek word is agamas, like just unmarried, not virgin. That he's using unmarried here in reference to a widower, or is that what do you think about that? I think he's using it uh, as an umbrella term for okay. unmarried. A bunch of people fit into the reason I think that is because well that the term um, does just mean unmarried and then at other points he talks specifically to the virgins to the betrothed to the widows he does include widows here in verse eight but he also says um, okay. in verse eleven yeah. for example he's talking to uh, pe- women who have separated from her husband uh-huh. um, verse uh-huh. eleven but if she does she should remain unmarried it's the same word there. Um, so if he's using, you know, divorced to speak about and unmarried together, he re- yeah. refers to himself yeah. as being unmarried. He could be a widow, um, or sorry, a widower, um, or he may have been never married. We don't know. I think in this in this chapter, he's just constantly moving back and forth okay. between all these different categories of marital situations. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, no, that's super helpful. And uh, yeah, it was in your blog. When you were, yeah, the booster shot, Christian. And just, it just, I never thought about it that way that like resisting sexual immorality is something all Christians are called to do. Like, that's not like, yeah. and yeah. and nowhere and else does he say, 
if it's just overwhelming, just run out and get a wife real quick, you know? <laughs> like, oh. yeah. And, you know, I'm not married. I've never had sex. So, you know, I'm not particularly qualified to, to speak about this, but I do have lots of married friends who talk about their struggle with sexual yeah. control, sexual yeah. self-control. You know, why don't married people need the special booster shot that allows them just to be faithful to this one person? Um, you know, it's just, I just, the more I think about it, the more I think just stands contrary to our whole understanding of the way that the spirit sanctifies us. Well, and also in the Greco-Roman culture, it was very, very common for married men to have a prostitute on the side, maybe a concubine, uh, maybe a a slave there, certainly a slave for the 20% of people who own slaves, sexual Mm -hmm. Service is very common, and it was, it was it, that wasn't seen as like like every, like the the writers would say the wife would become annoyed like oh, again all right well you know like but they were just expected to kind of put up with it to say that it was like immoral like when Christianity came along and held both men and women the same standard like that was shocking and we know from yeah. Corinth that Paul's dealing with a lot of like gre- <laughs> a residue of kind of Greco Roman sexual um moral thinking so um it's not just single people who are going going to be wrestling with you know temptations no, towards sexual immorality yeah that's really helpful um i want to move like practically in the church what's been your experience like in the church as a single per a single a single person of marital age i don't wanna, i don't want to put words in your mouth but i mean uh, do you think the church has had a really good healthy uh, theology of singleness, or do you think their view of singleness and marriage has been a little bit off? And what does that look like for you? Uh, well, certainly, after you read my book, you'll you'll be no <laughs> doubt that I that the church has had a really poor theology of singleness for a long time. I spent um the first year of my PhD, I spent reading every book I could find, every article I could find, listening to every podcast and sermon and conference talk that really touched on singleness at all. It was an exhausting, depressing year. At the end, I was really glad that I did it because at the end of it, I was I really came up with what I kind of talk about as a diagnosis of the way that we think about singleness today as evangelical Christians. Um, but it was pretty confronting about just how just how um, one one author I read described it this way, and I've used it ever since. She talks about our theology of singleness being uh, passive and palliative, and I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Speaking personally, I mean, I I have had, as most of, well, we all do, single or married, various seasons in my life where, you know, I have been more or less content in the situation that God has given me. I've had people in my life who have helped me or hindered me in various ways. That's just a reality of of being sinful people living in a sinful fallen world. I think God has for many years was cultivating a degree of contentment and resilience in my singleness that I hadn't anticipated. And I look back now and I can see that he was probably doing that in order for me to be able to do what I do now, which is really spend a lot of time in the kind of the depths of this without being consumed by the despair of it. Um, So I'm sort of able to separate myself back a little bit. But the reason I I do this ministry is because I know that there are so many single Christians out there. Now, whether they are, and I should say single, when I say single, I don't just mean people like myself who had never been married. Um, you know, there's widows, there's divorcees, those who are same-sex attracted, those who are opposite-sex attracted. There's all sorts of different contexts and circumstances. And the reason I do what I do is because I just think we have, as an evangelical church, have not loved these integral members of Christ's body in the way that we should have. We haven't valued and dignified them in the way that we should be. 
Um, and in doing that, we're not just hurting them, we're actually hurting who we are as the body of Christ. And mm-hmm. so I'm really motivated by that. Um, that's sort of, that's been my motivation to be able to make a contribution that actually helps move us forward, you know, in yeah. whatever way it might be. I've learned so much from my single friends about friendship, you know, mm. um, cause again, I'm just, I'll, everything I say is obviously from my American context. So I don't know how, how much to translate to your context, but like married people, married Christians typically really suck at friendship. <laughs> like, cause we, we've been, we've been told that like all your loneliness will be solved in marriage. And then, so we invest all this relational energy into marriage and it becomes kind of the thing that you focus on, which we've got a very high view of marriage. And I, and, and some of that's like, yeah, I think that that's good. You should prioritize that in many ways, but it just becomes so like inwardly focused and it's just, you're staring at each other and fulfill my needs, meet all my needs, meet, you know, all my relational needs. And then it's like your friendship muscles start to atrophy, you know, and like, and, and then you have so many lonely married people, you know, and it's just, or you'll talk to people at church and they're married and they just kind of look at you glazed over like, Hey, what's your, how you doing? what's your name? Okay. Good. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's just not, but like my single friends are like, I need, I need friends. Like I, I can't survive without, I can live without, they always say, you know, I can live without sex, but I can't live without love and intimacy. Like I need human yeah. interaction and community and deep, meaningful conversations. So they have these robust friendship muscles that are like, oh my gosh, like you do this so well. You know how to dig deep. You're meaningful. You know how to ask good questions. You can, you like mm-hmm. staying up late and talking about meaningful things, you know, like, um, yeah. so I just, yeah, I just, over the years have learned so much about friend. And this goes back to your point about not just singles needing the church, but the church needing singles. Yeah. So I've, I've got, I'm, I have a bit of a hobby horse on this one. Um, wait, I'll try, I'll try and not ride it for too long, but um, <laughs> feel free. I, we got it. We got time. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, and I need to be very careful about what I say. So let me be very clear. One of the things, well, a couple of things, in, in advocating and wanting to honour honor singleness, I want to do that in a way that doesn't diminish the significance of marriage. Right. I think it is entirely possible. I mean, the Apostle Paul does it. He's able to say marriage is wonderful, singleness is wonderful. He says it's kind of better. But, you know, yeah. he's able to yeah. hold these two without elevating one so that the other is diminished. And I really, you know, I strive to do that myself. And so I always feel like I need to say in seeking to esteem singleness, I'm in no way seeking to diminish marriage because I understand how important it is in so many ways for so many reasons. So that's the first thing to say. And the second thing to say before I sort of jump on the hobby horse is that I also understand how important friendship is within marriage. You know, I, I, I can only imagine that to not actually be able to call your spouse your friend Mm -hmm. must be terribly difficult um, and painful. Friendship is, you know, even more, I think, than romance, integral Mm -hmm. to healthy, godly marriage. But one of of my, this is the hobby horse, I'm concerned that we Christians are trying to subsume the essence of friendship into marriage so that they basically become one and the same thing. You know, think of how many social media posts you see of people's anniversaries, wedding anniversaries. I love celebrating them. But think about how many of them talk about another year being married to my very best friend. And I think what you're saying there is that the ideal, the kind of 
the epitome, the, the top experience of friendship that friendship possibly has to offer you is found in marriage. And if that's the case, well, why do you need other friends? Mm. You know, if this mm-hmm. one person is going to be everything to you, then your other friends become peripheral at that sense. And that, as you were saying, mm. puts an enormous mm. pressure yeah. on marriage to be, on one person to be everything that another person needs. And um, I, you know, I think we have to be very careful not to subsume this ideal of friendship into marriage because I really love um there's a theologian called Stanley Grintz who has a lovely way of speaking about friendship. He talks about it as kind of this ever open, ever inclusive, ever hospitable relationship where it's not like marriage, it's not exclusive. It's not just with one person. It's not just this is it forever well, for life, but it's dynamic. It's open to change. It welcomes other people in. Mm-hmm. It acknowledges that sometimes friendships change, diminish, leave. And so I think we need to be careful to keep the two things distinct whilst also recognising there is significant overlap between marriage and friendship yeah. as well. No, that's so so good. And that it's it's been so ingrained in, in our marriage kind of trajectory that, yeah, the, the you're marrying your best friend. And again, if that happens, that's great. Uh, I love what you said at the end about the openness of marriage. Like, I, I, I'm just thinking practically, and I'm just speaking anecdotally here. So, I mean, take it or leave it. But like I, in the, over the years with my wife and I, we've been married over 20 years now. And like, there's a certain special joy I get when we're around other people and I see her interacting with other people and like, you know, laughing with somebody else and somebody else is included in the conversation like that. There's, it just brings us energy to our marriage. And like, you know, sometimes we're always like, oh, should we go on a date just us or whatever? And, and we do that. Um, but there's sometimes where I'm like, no, I want to hang out with you with other people. Like, not because I'm yeah. sick of you and I want to be around other people. It's like, I enjoy you when you're with other people. Like, there's a whole dynamic. There's different relationships, personalities that open, it kind of aerate our relationship. And that's something I hope I've only realized more, more recently, really. The ancients... You know, marriage was like you'd be a married woman to raise your kids, pass on the family line or whatever. Maybe she's wealthy or gained social status or, she, you know, there's some stuff that I'm like, yeah, I don't necessarily want to baptize all that either. But and, and, you know, for them, friendships were always outside of like, no, you go hang out with mm-hmm. your friends and then you come home and, you know, your wife has a meal waiting for you or whatever. And it's like, OK, I don't want to baptize that. But there is something about their high view of friendship as married people that the ancients had that I'm like, I think we could redeem some of that a little more, you know? Yeah. And I I mean, speaking personally, I can only attest to how incredibly profoundly thankful I am for multiple married friends in my own life who have not just continued to invest in friendship with me Mm. um, personally, but who have invited me into their life and I want to be careful because it sounds a bit weird, into their marriage. Not in a yeah. weird way, but, I mean, like, <laughs> it included me in their life. You know, I don't just go and hang out with one of them or the other. I go and hang out with both of them. I have, you know, I have married male friends who will see something I've posted on Facebook and think, oh, I'm going to check in with Danny and see if she's okay, and they'll pick up the phone and they'll call me. Mm. And their wife, who is also my friend, 
is not at all phased by that. Yeah. In fact, encourages, yeah. you know, my friendship with her husband, doesn't see me as kind of a threat to their marriage in any way. And I have just been profoundly blessed by that um, and would so love to have seen more people being blessed in that same yeah. way. Oh, that's fantastic. You had a, a recent run in with, was it Doug Wilson online? <laughs> <laughs> I don't typically like to bring it. I, I just, that, that's how I came across it. I'm like, oh, what's this all about? I'm like, <laughs> well, I wrote an open letter. I, look, I've spent seven years reading stuff on singleness um, and I'm normally fairly robust in kind of going, oh, here we go again and shrugging it off and moving on. But um, there was an interview with Doug, Doug Wilson and Michael Foster on YouTube that someone sent to me and I just thought, nah, and it was on the gift of singleness stuff. It was a few things, but I just thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write something that addresses this. And I it wasn't intended to be writing. It was intended to be an open, it was an open letter to them saying, I would really like to understand how you reconcile what you've said in this video with all these other things. And I didn't, I honestly didn't expect that there would be engagement from either of them, um, or at least robust engagement and there wasn't and that's fine um I really wrote it because I wanted to encourage other people who might watch this video or come across it or some of their other teaching to kind of start asking questions I would assume he very humbly you know apologized for getting things wrong and and you know went back to the text and reconsidered what the bible says and Uh, that's what I would have assumed would have happened but that's shocking that he didn't change his mind (laughs) I mean wasn't expecting him to um I think, you know, without having a go at him or Michael Foster, I don't know either of them personally. And, you know, I know people who have great respect for their ministry in other ways. And so I don't want to, you know, buy into the cancel cancel culture moment that we live in and say these people are awful and you should never listen to anything they say. But there has just been so deeply entrenched for so many years this very, I think, harmful and even quite abusive theology of singleness in some circles. And this video was a reflection of well, some, some of that. the comments descri- describing singles are like not yeah. pretty enough to get married kind of thing, or it was really toxic. It was, it was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was people. If people look hard enough, people can find it. If they go to my blog, they'll be able to find the open letter and they can watch the video themselves if they want to. But um, I think I would want to say if you're someone who struggles with, if you're single and you feel hurt and alienated by some of the teaching that you've been, you've heard over the years, don't go and watch the video. It's just going to yeah. upset you more. Um, but if you're not single, you're not in that place and you actually want to engage with these things, go and watch it, read what I had to say and have a think about it um, and, yeah. and you know, come to your own mind on it. You're, you're gracious. Um, can, can we turn the corner a little bit? Because I first came across your name because you were one of many female scholars who is a commentarian that somebody recommended whose work I should check out. But then I, I, lo- I started looking at your credentials and you're a pastor. You're a female pastor who's a complementarian, right? Or you're, or you're ordained uh, in the, yeah. as an yes. deacon in the Anglican church, um, which you do you have the title pastor. I mean, are you a complementarian female pastor? Because that'd be really cool. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I have used the word pastor before. Pastor isn't a word. It's more of an American, t- well, it's a biblical term. In in Anglican context, we tend to talk about ministry and ministers more than pastors. Okay. So I've, I've spoken about myself as being um, a, a, a minister and particularly a women's minister in the past. Okay. So I don't currently work in a church, but I went to um, theological college and after that I was ordained um, as a deacon. So in the Anglican system, you can be ordained as a deacon 
and then a priest, and then you couldn't become a bishop. Uh, well, very few people will become a bishop. I'm um, complementarian by conviction, um, and so I would never choose to be ordained as a priest and a bishop, but I think being ordained as a deacon is completely consistent with my complementarian theology, and particularly then how I express that you know, in practice is, is the other issue. Okay. So, um, so I am technically a reverend, um, though I very rarely use that title. I only use it when I'm trying to catch someone's attention, um, <laughs> such as in an open letter to somebody. <laughs> so how, how would you describe your, because I know there's different brands of complementarianism, and I know some people don't even like these terms anymore, but for lack of better terms, like how would you, yeah, how would you describe, I was going to yeah. give you some options, but I'm sure you know the options. <laughs> I think it is getting harder and harder, isn't it, to kind of use that language in a way yeah. that has genuine meaning across all sorts of different landscapes. So, I mean, speaking personally, I believe that God created men and women absolutely equal in his image, absolutely equal in his love for them, in their dignity as human beings. I also think that God created there to be um, certain responsibilities given to certain men in certain contexts. Um, And so I hold that in the church and in marriage, God has created an intended good order between um, men and women. I don't take that to be extrapolated into every relationship with every man and every woman. I'm particularly talking about the church and in marriage. Um, I'm not married, so, you know, I can't speak from that personally, but um, as a a Christian woman, I'm absolutely committed to what I, I, I talk about it as creative complementarianism, not in the way of how do you get around it, how do you be creative with it, but how do you be faithfully imaginative with partnership in ministry, in church, between men and women. So I I often get confused, for example, when I hear people who are critiquing complementarians sort of say, well, what about Romans 16 and all, you know, all the women that Paul talks about there, as if that's sort of some massive confrontation to my belief. Actually, I fully embrace Romans 16 because there I see Paul honouring the ministry and the service and in context, the leadership of women. I'm all for uh, us, you know, doing that as complementarian Christians um, in a way that also I think reflects the biblical um, exhortations for men to be elders um, and to for women not to exercise teaching authority over men in the church. So, so because I know, like, like I just got done reading Craig Blomberg and and talking to Gary Brashears, and they have, they have a view of like male only elders, but elders aren't mm-hmm. the only teachers and certainly aren't the only mm-hmm. ones that are s- supposed to be doing pastoring, you know, like shepherding people. So they would be, yeah. some people call them soft complementarians, male only elders, but yeah, female, you know, yeah, female prophets, obviously in the New Testament, which is similar yeah. to like teachers and preachers still under the authority of an, of a overarching elder, a servant foot washing, um, humble <laughs> inside out kind of authority. Like, like I think that's a big piece that's often missed is the, the whole new Testament vision turns the concept of authority on its head. So even when you say in authority, it has nothing to do about superiority or priority no. or inferiority. No. It has to do with responsibility and, and overseeing the spiritual and direction love. or whatever. Yeah. Um, where would you line up on that? Would you still see, like, would you teach on a Sunday morning uh, under the authority of a male leadership or would you not go there? Um, no, personally, I, well, no, personally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get up and give a sermon on a Sunday morning. 
you know, my my take is that even if as I'm doing that under the authority of someone else, I'm still exercising authority okay. in the act of what I'm doing. But having said that, there are lots of other things that I will very happily do up the front of church on a Sunday morning. Um, and I don't just mean singing or doing prayers or making the announcements. And so, for example, I have gone to numerous church, I've been invited to numerous churches where I've gotten up and instead of the sermon that day, the um, pastor or the minister has done an extended interview with me where I've sort of engaged with some of the things that I've been researching and thinking about, almost a form of prophecy in a way, mm-hmm. a word, you know, personal exhortation. I founded and lead a parachurch ministry um, called Single Minded. You know, I run webinars. I've given webinars. Um, I will be chairing our upcoming conference in a couple of weeks' time. So it's not in any sense that I don't think there aren't really important and very creative and many opportunities for women to be involved in um, contributing uh, to the church as a whole um, in really important ways. Um, and I think that's what one of the things that I find difficult about the critique of complementarianism, that you know, because I personally believe that I, um, well, I, I'm convicted that I shouldn't give up, get up and give a sermon to a mixed congregation, that I'm about silencing women. Not at all. You know, I'm, I've done a PhD in theology. I'm running a parachurch ministry. I've got all sorts of, I've got endless opportunities. And it's often, usually men who are inviting me mm-hmm. to come and be involved and contribute um, and I do think that this might be a bit of a, a cultural difference um, between my context in Australia and the US. You know, I know the US is a very big place and so I don't want to be too prescriptive. Um, and I also don't want to give the indication that we've got everything sorted down here because we haven't, you know, we're imperfect too. But my sense is that perhaps my experience of being a complementarian woman has been a more positive and encouraging and fruitful one than for many um, American women is is the sense that I get, particularly from social media. So I don't know if I should be listening to that or not. Well, that, yeah. yeah, maybe. <laughs> that that's interesting. I, I've spent a, a bit of a little bit of time in Australia, um, so I I, know, I kind of can see where you're going. I've spoken at churches there, hung out with Christian leaders, and. There is something about, I'm trying to search for a good term here because there's so many loaded terms, but I'll just, let me just say this, American masculinity. There is something there, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, we have a unique history as, as a country and, and I, you know, people have often, my Australian friends have often described Australia as kind of somewhere in between America and like the, you know, the UK, like <laughs> where you, you do have a little bit of that kind of cowboy independent spirit, but you still have the kind of. British spirit as well. And then people who live there know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, there is something about American masculinity that has very much spilled over to the church that is unique to the American Christian experience. So I, I anecdotally, it would, it would, I would assume that you might have experienced not that uh, as much in, in yeah. Australian churches where even a complementarian theological structure would probably have a, a higher percentage. I'd be so trying to be so careful. I think a higher percentage of super humble men who think this church would close tomorrow if it wasn't filled with amazing ministers who are females who are carrying this church. 
you know, yeah. without them, this church would not flourish and the kingdom of God would absolutely need, even though they might have a the, for theological reasons, a structure, a certain ecclesiology that has men in certain positions. Um, would that be, I mean, I, um, and I'm just thinking of people, the Australian leaders that I know and they're like, yeah, they're all don't fit the kind of American masculinity kind of spirit at all. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And I think there's probably truth to that though. Um, you could talk to any number of egalitarian Australian women who would dispute that and who okay. would say no um, and who would have a similar critique of okay. complementary men in Australia. It might look a bit different. The expression of that might not be quite so as you you know talked about sort of the US kind of style of masculinity. Um, but certainly, you know, I grew up, I, I as a Sydney Anglican, our reputation is kind of this ultra-conservative yeah. fundamentalist kind of, and so I've I've always grown up thinking, well, that's you know I, I really am very ultra conservative compared to anybody else in the rest of the world with my beliefs. And then I got on Twitter and I realised, oh gosh, no, oh, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm completely liberal compared to some of these yeah. people. Um, so I think it, there really is a spectrum, and there's just different cultural expressions of that. Um, and again, I don't mean to imply that my kind of context of complementarianism has kind of got this down pat. We don't. I've got frustrations. Mm. You know, I talk about them quite often. Um, but um, I do also personally feel, have feel very well supported and encouraged. And, you know, where I am now has largely been at the encouragement and fostering of lots of Christian men in leadership who have really prompted me and supported me and in many ways, you know, resourced me um, to be able to do the ministry that I do. Um, and so I have a lot of respect and thankfulness for them. I just thought of something that I don't know if this has come up in the conversation. I guess this would be a more on the complementarian side, but like, where does podcasting fit into this? Like, <laughs> what's a theology of podcast or an ecclesiology of podcasting? Because I mean, you've spent 20, 30 minutes unpacking the Greek text of first Corinthians seven and eight to yeah. at least 10,000 men, many of whom who don't know Greek who are like, wow, well, she's smarter than I am. And like, there's a certain level of, I don't want to say authority, but like, kind of like your, your academic credentials are higher than most of my male audience. And, and people would say, well, it's not, this isn't a Sunday morning, you know, it's like, what if they listen to the podcast on Sunday morning? Well, it's not inside of a church building. Okay. Is that the is that yeah. is that the distinction? Well, it's not in a group. It's not in a group. You know, what if they listen to it in a group? I don't know. They're not allowed to. Should they not listen to theology and raw in a group when there's a female exegeting a passage? Or is it because in conversation and the assumption is I will correct you because I'm a man and if you say something unbiblical, but I'm here learning from you. I don't. You spent more time in the Greek than I have here, so. I, I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah. Like, how does this fit in? <laughs> I'm sorry if I violated your convictions by bringing you on. Oh, gosh, no, no, no. You haven't at all. I mean, it is, it is complicated. And let's, let's, I, you know, this is something that I continue to think through, particularly with my ministry, Single-Minded, you know, and the, the webinars that I do there and the content I deliver. I have to make sure that I'm being faithful to my, you know, theological convictions um, and not just kind of let them go because it might be convenient for me to do that. But, in terms of your question, I, I do think it's not so much, you know, is it a Sunday morning, are there people around? But for me, you know, the exhortation to eldership um, happens in relationship in the gathered body of Christ in the local community of God's people who meet together as the body of Christ, you know. And so as people are listening to this podcast, 
they're listening to Christians talk with each other mm-hmm. um, and we're called to mm-hmm. exhort and rebuke and teach and correct each other. We're, we're not um, gathered together as the body of Christ in pastoral relationship with, you know, this community of people that we call our family. Even though you and I are family, we are a brother and sister yeah, in yeah. Christ. Yeah, yeah. There, I think, you know, when you look at the passages on view that talk about the role of men and women in the church, it's it's clear to me at least that the the context is the local gathered body of Christ mm-hmm. in relationship mm-hmm. with each other. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't possibly implications that come from that for other contexts. But again, a little bit like what we were talking about with singleness and sort of the contemporary and the ancient context, we can't just superimpose one thing directly onto the other. We have to do the hard work of negotiating um, where those things cross over. Yeah, um, yeah. And I am certainly still continuing to try and work that through faithfully myself. I, I don't definitely don't have all the answers um, yeah, but I want yeah. to be committed to actually being faithful and godly in in being proactively in pursuing this. There, there is some interesting, just ecclesiological diversity in the the main kind of passages that, that talk about men and women. I mean, the Corinthian church seems to be a bit more democratic, if you, if you will. You know, like you have in First Corinthians fourteen, you get the picture of one person has a prophecy and an interpretation, and then. Mm-hmm. This prophet needs to keep this other prophet in check, and this person brings a teaching, this one an exhortation, and there's no real male-female distinctions there. You have females prophesying in First Corinthians 11, and um, it seems to be a lot of just kind of back and forth. And then you get to the pastorals, and there does seem to be a bit more of a ironed-out leadership structure and is it is it a development in Paul's thought? Is it yeah? Look what happened to the Corinthian church because because we didn't have a leadership structure. So later on in Paul's life, he's like, hey, we need to start. You know, or is it different context? You know, is it Ephesus, Crete versus Corinth? You know, I, there's just, there, there's so many. We're listening to one side of the telephone conversation when we're reading Paul's letters and that with, and, and, and male female relationships in the ancient world and the Greco Roman world are very different and very complex in the first mm-hmm. century, even between Palestine and Greco, broader Greco Roman world. And there's so many of those. And I don't want to say you have to be like a scholar and all this to understand the Bible, but, Kind of, I don't know. Like it's mm-hmm. complex. First Corinthians eleven is so incredibly complex. I've read that passage for years, yeah. and until I really dig into deep research and every single verse, and a lot of stuff starts opening up. I'm like, oh my word! Like this is a really, really complicated chapter. Which, 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 going back to our, we, we, I don't know if this is offline or whatever, but like when people are so black and white on their views on this stuff, it is a little bit like, man, I don't know. I, I. Yeah. I'm not an idiot. You're not an idiot. I just see a lot of complexity here. I just feel like I don't know if I'll ever have a strong 100% black and white view on my views wherever I end up landing on it all. That's right. And I think, you know, it's important for us to bring that humility to our understanding, our reading of Scripture and to our conversations with each other. Like you, I wrestle with this idea that you can spend, I mean, like 1 Corinthians 7, I can spend seven years kind of dipping back and forth into that chapter and still be confused about aspects of it and still look at it and think, oh, I've just read that in a completely different way than I have before. So I'm confronted with the complexity of God's word in that sense. But I'm also excited by the fact that you can also pick up the Bible and read it. And even when you've got lots of unanswered questions, 
God's spirit is still at work through his living and active word, teaching you truth and helping you to actually comprehend um, his truth. And so I think that's part of the joy of scripture um, is that we can never, we will never master it because it's not there to be mastered. It's there to be, you know, to dwell within us um, by the spirit as we come to understand and know him more and more, which doesn't mean that we should think that scripture isn't clear, um, you know, but I do think there's a humility we need to bring to our reading of scripture and in our conversations with each other about it. Yeah, that's so good. Well, Danny, that's a great word to end on. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, first of all, coming on Theology Raw. It's past midnight where you're at now. And uh, thank you so much for your writing. I'm so excited for your book to come out. I'm sad I have to wait nearly a year to, to read it, or maybe you can give me an early copy the man maybe i'll give you one and you can write the endorsement yeah i'll yeah i'll yeah yeah for sure yeah send, send it my way um can't promise anything but i it, it's i'm fascinated <laughs> in the topic and i think it is one of those that has been largely misunderstood and i think you bring a lot of just breath of fresh air to to the conversation so yeah thanks so much for being on the show danny thanks for having me This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.